It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. I think this show today is one that so many of you will relate to. Uh, It's a topic that comes, that is shared with me quite often. And um, so empaths were once called highly sensitive people. But today, they're more recognized now by the word empath. Empaths empaths are highly aware of the emotional energy around them and of their own emotional needs. To be an empath is an art form to discover how our perceptions guide and inform us, shape us, and at times limit us requires extraordinary awareness. It also requires the skills and the strength of a lion because it takes real courage to be empathic. The good news is that there are ways to protect yourself while living with an open heart. Today's special guest, Elaine Clayton, has written the book, The Way of the Empath, to show you how to use creative visualization for that purpose. It is a guide for every empath and spiritually sensitive soul to explore either abilities with exercises, explore their abilities with exercises, affirmations, and creative journaling, as well as methods to protect themselves. We certainly need that. Elaine Clayton is an artist and author-illustrator of several books for children and adults on intuitive intelligence. She is an intuitive reader, Reiki master, and teacher of intuitive empathic development. Um, Elaine studied at the School of Visual Arts in New York, where she earned a Master's of Fine Arts in Visual Essay. Her editorial art includes works for the New York Times, New York Times Book Review, and books by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley and author of the popular Broadway play Wicked, Gregory Gregory McGuire. (laughs) Good morning, Elaine. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored to be with you for this time. Oh, I I feel honored to have you. Um, I'm so excited to have you here with us today because this is a topic that I know hits home for so many people. Uh, As someone who deals with um, emotional abuse, mainly emotional abuse, and often it starts in childhood, this is such a such a widespread um, it's something that affects all of us really so many of my mm-hmm. listeners so why don't we start off by talking about how you define an empath well that's a really interesting way to start because I think there probably for as many people as there are what it is to be an empath would have you know definitions you know, considering everyone has their own orientation. For me, an empath is someone who doesn't even mean to, but naturally is predisposed physiologically to 
feel the feelings of others or to perceive the feelings of others in a way that those around them do not. So, and I think that we can break it down because there are people who are really empathic and they do it more in an intellectual mental process where they can think and surmise that something is a painful ordeal or something is not fair or not ethical. And that's terrific because we need that. And then there is the natural empath born with this ability to feel, and it is as if it enters into the nervous system, into the energy centers of the body automatically without thinking first, right? No thinking yet that that you could be aware of, just a sudden shot of feeling. Uh, so, so that then brings us to empathic sensing because the empath, the natural empath is picking up on and feeling what isn't really being said or expressed, obviously. So we get into empathic knowing, a kind of quiet knowing that really is on a scale there of intuition and psychic um, intelligence because the empath is picking up on information that is not seen, right? So everyone else doesn't really seem to pick up on some things that the empath is standing there soaking up, if that makes sense. Mm, Absolutely, it does. So we can be born this way or we can um, develop it. We can acquire it based on um, our situation. And I would imagine that really happens in childhood, right? If we acquire well, it. I, yeah, I think it's fascinating because um, I loved what you said when we began about empaths and, and childhood abuse, some form. I think we're all subjected to some form of emotional letdown um, in our childhood. Someone along the way does something that is emotionally painful to the innocent new person, you know. Um, so I feel like we definitely, if there's a spectrum of emotional intelligence and empathic sensing, one thing is for sure, even the most egregious sociopath knows what it feels like for someone to not get their feelings. Do you know what I mean? Um, so th- I, I would almost say the beginning of understanding what it is to have empathic knowing is to know how it feels when nobody gets how we feel, you know, because that's the thing we hate the most is when we have a feeling, a pain, a, a concern, something that's really trying, and those around us don't care. There's nothing worse for a human probably than to have that sensation. So I do think that there is a range of, I don't know, roles people play and and different ways people are wired and all that. And then there are ways that we get conditioned and then there are ways that we develop. And then there are ways that we consciously choose to develop. Mm. So I do believe we can, can, you know, seek to have a deeper understanding of empathic sensing and develop it, yes. Right. And yeah, and what you said about, you know, people not getting us, I think that's so important. 
And especially if you are married or living with somebody, I think it's really important that they understand that this is who you are because otherwise it can be so stressful. So like um, in in my situation, I'm so energetically sensitive to, to anger and stress and mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So, um, yes. yeah, so my husband and I have an arrangement, you know, that he just can't bring it in the house. You know, he has to leave it outside mm-hmm. because if he comes in the front door and I'm way on the other side of the house, we have a big house, I know it. I can feel it. Yeah, you feel the tension, right? I, I feel it right away. So, um, mm-hmm. and I can't handle that because after years of, um, childhood emotional abuse and the recovery from it, um, Mm -hmm. my adrenals are very easily overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, it's, so I think it's really important what you said about that we, people have to understand us in order for us to really feel comfortable. Um, Otherwise, the only way we'll feel comfortable is being alone. And that's not good for anybody, right? No. And, and what's so challenging about this is that the natural empath will automatically in their wound really i I mean i think it's easy to feel wounded and susceptible to pain because of exactly what you said your nervous system is your endocrine every system in you is picking up on you know levels of tension and all that but because we're that way it's really easy to be in a relationship with exactly the person who also has wounds but may be more narcissistic. That's a classic (laughs) thing, isn't it? You're the expert on that, right? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, Empaths get with people who are wounded in their way, and narcissists are attracted to empaths, and it just ends up being really interesting. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I wish I knew how to get around that, but I think that's the classic case isn't it well it is the classic case and the reason is that empaths um are so forthcoming and honest and real and giving and they put that forth very quickly in Mm -hmm. every relationship every person that they meet it is the first thing that that goes forth um Mm -hmm. in their communication with another person and so narcissists are on high alert for that they look for people that are like that and they capitalize on it they they use it to um, wear that person down to get their person's trust um, to make that person love them Uh, you know it's it's perfect so I tell people because most people who are getting out of relationships like that they're like Randy I'm terrified to get into another relationship. I don't think I can. And the one thing that they have to learn is not to wear that on the outside. It's one Mm -hmm. thing to be an empath, but to put that forth as the way that you represent yourself in a society Mm -hmm. where there are many predators around us can be very dangerous for the empath. I think that's true. And I think that knowing that, well, here's the way I like to, position myself with that, that the empath isn't a victim, that we're empowered by the sensitivity because it's a form of intelligence and, and we're on our, in our process learning how to be stronger, more aware, more conscious. All of this is about consciousness, really. And the narcissist, though they may be ex- 
exploiting or scheming, they are originally extremely wounded and unconscious, lacking in insight. So it isn't really about who's, who's the bad guy versus who's the good guy. That won't get us anywhere very well. But the empath naturally won't be trusting themselves, right? I mean, it's very hard to yes. trust yourself when you see a pattern. Every time I get involved, it turns out, oh, it turns out to be, I thought I was in the be- most beautiful thing, and then it turns out to have this awful shadow and I didn't know. Of course, you don't know until you're out of it usually. You don't see it until you mm-hmm. have a perspective of it, right? Right. So then how do you build self-trust? And I think it begins with, um, but I'm not an expert, but here's an idea. You can tell me what you think. With getting the way in which empathic sensing is empowering, aligning with that and with a sense of benevolence for the other and for the other's pain without being responsible for it. That doesn't mean cosmically we, we will find relationships that don't involve narcissists. Probably unconsciously there are so many sub-level things going on. Who knows? If we are born with a theme, you know, it could happen again. But I do think empaths are meant to help heal other people, and, and there's nothing worse than going to someone with your heart open and they they don't know what it's like to have your pain, and so they say things that don't help. So the empath ends up being initiated from birth to go through all kinds of painful things. But then they have insight, they have clarity, they have compassion, so that their right. role as healers is really good, you know. Right, um, right. Right? So there's there's a lot to celebrate about being empathic, but, you know, I wish I knew whether or not we could avoid those hard situations and patterns that get set up in relationships because I don't know how much is really unconscious in actually driving the agenda. Right. Well, the one thing we don't want to do um, as empaths when we're with, um, you know, personality disordered individuals like narcissists is we don't want to be overly compassionate because it gets us in trouble. It gets Mm -hmm. us in trouble. So we have to really curb that. And that's a natural inclination for us. So to tell somebody not to do that. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you short. I I feel like I get all excited because you're you're talking my language here. But I think, (laughs) like, the compassion will be there. We can't cut it off. But it's how to use it in a way that's healthy with a healthy emotional boundary. So right. you're going to feel it, right? But it's it's the ego that says, and the ego does its own thing, but it does compel the person to automatically want to fix it. So then we have to be conscious of the ego doing that and say, you know, ego, you're great, you're really wonderful. However, I wasn't there when this person's original wound happened. I only just met them. I'm not responsible for their life story. I don't actually think this, I feel good around this person because that's the other part. Not not only not being responsible for other people with that compassion, it's that feeling, the feelings as they arrive and then sorting through them and trusting it. How many times will an empath say, I really did know I didn't feel that comfortable around that person. But I loved them. I cared about them. It gets murky because people are such beautiful facets. Everyone's like a mosaic. Everyone has something extremely beautiful about them. 
So the empath will say, but I fell in love, but they did this, but, you know, people get love bombed, the whole thing. But they knew because they're very good at picking up on the most subtle clues and cues. Mm -hmm. The empath felt intrinsically nervous, unsettled, um, somewhere in there didn't feel right, but put it aside. And that comes with experience, too. Life experience trains us not to do that so much, you know. We give people a chance. We put things aside. But after you've been hurt plenty, you realize, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to honor that feeling again. I, don't, I want to honor it when I sense danger. But the empath will often feel it and kind of ignore it. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know who said it, uh, a colleague of mine, you know, brings this up, but there's someone who said we are the only species on earth that run towards danger instead of away from it. <laughs> it's so That's true. That's so funny, and it works for the archetypal role, like the firefighter and the doctor. We want them, but um, we don't need to um, be destructive to the self. You can't save anyone. Uh, okay, a firefighter can save someone. In their role, a doctor can save someone. Uh, you can kind of save someone in your role, right? It's a professional role. You may be absolutely the exact person to open up the doors that will give someone their freedom. But in a personal relationship, you can't save anyone. No one can come in here and save me either. Usually people don't even want to be saved. They're, they're not ready to be saved unless they're asking to be saved, and then they'll take care of what it is that they have to do to get that healing underway, right? So right away the dynamic is already kind of lopsided if the empath chooses in a personal relationship uh, quest to be coupled with someone wounded in a way that they think inwardly they can save. But yes. then again, there are those unconscious motivators. You know, this is my role. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to pacify the narcissist. Here I yeah. am. Here I am. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I've, had, so. I've had so many people say, you know, it really, I really believe it's my job to save him or her. And, um, you know, and, know. and that's real, it's, it's really hard to change that. Do we have a caller? Do you mind if I take this mm -hmm. call and see if the sure, person, person sure. has a question? Okay. Sure. Okay. I'm trying. I'm Hi. Oh, okay. Was, Good morning. Hi. Hi. I'm really enjoying this, and you just explained my life when you said narcissist hunt down. <laughs> I've had three narcissistic husbands who beat me in the very short marriages and wondered, what is wrong with me? <sighs> you know what? I would say first, let's congratulate you for having three short marriages. You got out three times, right? Let's let's look at the strength in that because a lot of people don't have the strength to get past it and cannot, cannot, cannot get out of it. And you could argue the point that if it's a pattern that repeats, you're kind of in it, in it, and in it. But I would still like to focus on your strength at being able to recognize this is not right and to get out of it, even if it did repeat itself. Um, so do you have a question about that? I... What's the what's the most important thing a nurse uh, yeah a narcissist an empath can do to protect themselves? Well, you know, I think Randy, being this 
expert on this. We're so, we're so lucky to have this expert here, right? Randy, I'm so glad to be here with you. I'll, I'll say what I would say is the first thing is just what you already got. You recognize that you have a gift. You're empathic. It's a form of intelligence. It's a strength. And then to understand that you are not responsible for other people and that when you when you sense uh, that pattern start again, and you will. You've had some experience now. You will, right? Um, protecting the self is first being consciously aware that you have the ability and the gift to perceive and pick up on other people's pain. And the second part is to say to yourself and to reinforce, I'm not responsible for it. And then it's life skills from that point. Um, not attaching, to, not being attached to the outcome, not needing to be liked by the person, not being pulled in by manipulation that might seek to pull you in. What would you say, Randy? That was really good. <laughs> it's a start, right? You pretty, oh my gosh, yes. You hit on a lot of the high points. Um, I would say that the major thing is what you said, Elaine, earlier, is that we all know it, but we don't trust it. See, so what a narcissist does is they know that sensitive people are, are very easily manipulated because they want to believe in the good, goodness of everyone. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they, as soon as we become aware that something is off, and we usually will state it because we're very, very open with our feelings, that's when they talk us out of it. And so Mm -hmm. we allow ourselves to be talked out of it instead of believing what we initially know. And And you know what I think, mm -hmm. Randy, and um, to the caller, I really think it's the inner child that is traumatized, wounded, in shock, hurt by something that did happen, who actually is driving this choice. Because the inner child is the one that wants so desperately to be loved and appreciated. And the inner child is the one that couldn't survive unless they they took care of uh, whoever was around in their environment in the way of adults. Um, it's, so it's not you, the adult, who knows better. You, the adult, knows. You made the phone call. You, you got out of three relationships. You're smart. It's not you choosing the relationship with the narcissist. It's the inner child. So one of the meditations that I love to do, and I don't know if I put this in the in the empath book as one of the ways to um, protect the self. I can't remember. But I do this for myself. I envision my fully formed spiritual being self, like this glorious me, future me, you know, total me. And you can picture yourself as beautiful as you can imagine yourself, strong as you can imagine yourself, and have that self talk to the wounded inner child that is activated and say to you, to that child, you know, you're wonderful, you're loving, and I'm in charge. You're too young to choose a relationship, so I will choose for you. You're not in charge here. Let that child inside know they won't choose the partner well. You know, mm, it's a way wow. to play with addressing the part of you that is choosing these relationships. And you're not alone. We all do it. Yep. Don't you feel know, stigmatized. Uh, and and <laughs> as far as having been married to three narcissists, you that's exactly at the point where most people come to me. <laughs> 
So That's don't cool. feel bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't feel bad. It usually takes about three relationships before people wake up, and that is not your fault. It's not Mm-mm. your fault. But the fact that you have woken up, uh, it's really important that you reach out and, and get some guidance on how to proceed forward so that you don't do this again because you're, you know, Elaine has given you some wonderful tools. And I gave you some tools. But you need support to go through this so that you can bounce this off of someone. Because when you go back into your head, into your mind, there's still a lot of programming in there. And so that can often influence the way that you think about things. So it's important Mm -hmm. to get that programming out so that you are clear, so that you're back to who you are. And it is at that point when you're clear and back to who you are that you can make healthy choices. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank All you. Right. I'm going to put you Thanks. back on hold. Keep listening, okay? It's only going to get thank better. You. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, wait. Oops. Oh. Okay. Elaine, I put I put the wrong person on hold. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Here we go. Sorry. Okay. So I gotta clear my um, throat. That's okay. I do that all the time. Um, so how do our egos really get involved in um, in the decisions that we make? The this egoic pain that you talk about, um, in your chapter, the ego's drive to win. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we, so. We have an ego, right? We have, and I, we won't go into all the facets of the ego, except to say that there's there's a light side and shadow side to everything. The ego is this great force that gets us to feel a sense of life, to feel alive, and to go choose things and use our free will and go become something that we want to be. In other words. Our aspiration is there, and I think it's in part because um, we do have our own personal ideals. We're each individuals, and we're unique, and the ego can help us do these things. In fact, the ego helps us spiritually make decisions and then learn the best lessons we ever could have learned in life or to at least go through some life initiations. So it's just that some of those times – the ego is destructive, and I, sadly, I think our society really focuses more on the ego aspect that is about win-lose dynamic, winner or loser, winner or loser. It's very black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. So we don't see anything in the middle, and we set up our entire social system based on winning and losing, teams. Uh, very early on, the child learns at school if I'm right, I get rewarded. I get a gold star. If I'm wrong, I'm embarrassed in front of the whole class. I'm humiliated. I may even have to put my head on my desk. I may be put in time out. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. There are a thousand ways that we shame each other from a very early age. So we're conditioned to shut off any part of ourselves that may balance out the force of the ego and its destructive power. Hmm. So I don't know if that really answers what you were. It does. Yeah, going. it does. Yeah, I mean it does. It's it's always there's always that struggle. Um, it's a good thing, but we have to. I know that I have to um, sometimes curb my ego um, in the work that I do. But me too. I mean it's yeah. there, right? 
It's, it's always, always there. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not bad. It's it's natural. We are human. We are alive. We are supposed to strive to live, to survive. This is we need the ego. We're not in heaven. We're on right. earth. And we can bring heaven here, like loving others and offering help like you do for for people. That brings heaven here because it's offering love through information, through care, through time. That's, That's the part of us that isn't concerned with winning or losing. It's concerned with giving um, help to the other. The ego is natural. So I think where it gets ugly is when the ego thinks it's real and thinks it's supreme and thinks that um, that dynamic of win-lose is real and that competition um, defines our worth, which it doesn't. Hmm. So true. You know, I wanted to read um, this section where you say staying in the flow because oh my gosh is this true i'm going to read this empaths suffer when they become locked into rigid timelines and demanding schedules they need a more serendipitous disposition to feel plugged into the universal empathic zone there are times when a strict schedule is necessary of course but in general most empaths prefer an organically supple schedule overly regulated existence oh yes Empaths can work within structures, but their sensitivity requires that they avoid rigidity. Um, They need to welcome spontaneous interactions with others and to focus on people rather than schedules or systems. And then you go to say, I'm just going to read a little more. Empaths work best when their movements are voluntary, not etched in stone, because they go with the impressions they're receiving. Strict schedules may interfere with the strong feeling they may get to break the routine so 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 true i love that that you relate to that (laughs) because i you know i think that we're being intuitive when you start listening to it um and even as a kid in school you right we might remember you were actually preserving your own um what was getting your attention maybe wasn't part of the overall program anyway so it's not like they owned us totally. Um, but I, I feel like we, when we tune in, you go through a process where you allow what your inner guidance tells you. You feel like doing this and you feel like doing that. It's not about selfishness. It can, can be self-involved in a way because, hey, look, when there's a team effort, you know, and I'm the one saying I don't feel like doing that, that can sabotage a team effort. So sometimes it has to be suspended and we have to be a part of a team and, you know, do things that we don't feel like doing and all that in order to be cooperative and part of society or being a parent or whatever. But it can only be there to a degree that it is healthy and okay. Um, The minute an empathic person is subjected to a rigid system, they're going to have to shut off for a long time their um, intuitive guidance, which will kill something in them. You can do it for a time. If you're getting a Ph.D., it's on a schedule. you got to do this. you got to show up, right? If you have a baby, the baby needs to be changed. If you're really empathic, you change the baby no matter what it is you want to do, right? You, so it, it gets real interesting, all the layers there. But in general... Let's say I'm going to the grocery store 
And as I'm approaching, I start to feel extremely uncomfortable. I don't like the vibration or whatever you want to call it in the parking lot itself even. I'm not even out of the car yet. You know what I'm going to do? I'm leaving. Because these days, who knows what will happen at any point in time. I'm going to trust. Maybe right now I'll go do something else and I'll come back when it feels better. I actually will do that more than I did when I was younger. I might just endure things I, you know, didn't want to do. Same thing with social interactions. You might be invited to a party and you have this awful feeling you don't want to be there. And later you'll stick it out, you'll hate it, something will happen when you're there, and you'll wish later that you hadn't gone, right? How many times does that happen? Oh, um, all the time. So, yeah, right? And so we're we're at our best, I think. It takes time to craft this. It takes time time and opportunity and all kinds of other things to kind of cultivate to get to a point where mostly at least part of the day you can do the things you feel compelled to do more than the outer structure owning you. Most people just go with the outer structure because that's how we're conditioned so they don't question it. But there's a lot of self-deprivation when we, when there's zero attention to the intuitive feeling that is organic, that isn't on anyone's schedule. You know, we need to make time for that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Acceptance of the fact that this is who we are is really important. I know that I've had several clients who have come to me and they've just been miserable and they've been in jobs that are very, you know, rigid, regimented. um, And they're having a lot of problems in their life. They're having Mm -hmm. a lot of problems recovering from the abuse and those kind of things. And when we recognize that they're empaths, And Mm -hmm. we allow them, you know, and I say, okay, now you get to be who you want to be. You don't have to Mm -hmm. be this person that society says you want to be. It changes Mm -hmm. so much for people when they they say, oh, I really can be whoever I want to be. Yeah, they never were given that. Well, and when client with my clients, um, the same thing. And and I'm so sympathetic and empathetic about it because. There, there's, you got to say, you know, anyone who can shut off that inner voice that says, oh, I wish I could do this, what, I want my dream to come true, you know, that, that takes a lot of discipline for them to have developed like that and to shut off their inner kind of drive for something that's personal to them, not what the others expected. But I'll, I'll ask, one of the first things I'll ask, and I mentioned this in the book too because I think this is real important, um, having your your own ideals, so you know what we idealize is personal and unique to each of us. We we may share some ideals, but what you love is a little different from what I love. And when I listen to what I love, I will know what it is I would love to do, how I would love to spend my time. When we don't get a chance to really validate ourselves based on what we love, then we're we're pulled off our center. The the um, the most immediate way to know what you love is just to think about food, you know, because we rarely will eat a big plate of food we don't love. We we know what we like and what we don't like. So right there, most people at least know what food they like. And but I will ask people first thing sometimes, what do you love? And I you don't. Uh, seriously, a lot of times people say, I don't know. 
I get I the know. same thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, I knew you would say that because they're mm-hmm. not allowed. No one asked them that before very much. What did a, did a teacher ever say to you? What do you love? Or even what do you love about math? Or what do you what do you dislike about it? You know, they they weren't asking. Maybe today we ask kids a lot more and we're getting better. But for the most part, most people feel subjected to without even being aware the rule of you aren't worthy. You're not. You're nothing unless you're what Ramdas. Uh, I love Ramdas, and he he talks about it. We get into somebody training, you know, where everyone says you got to go be somebody, and it's not who <laughs> the somebody you might want to be. It's the somebody that you're told will make better money, will have security, will blah 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 blah, make the family look good, make us proud, you know. So. Um, if you're in boot camp for somebody training your whole life, having someone say, what do you love, is kind of a big question. Wow, what do I love? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it might be someone's spiritual role to come in and have their whole life enduring that. You know, I don't know. I think it's mysterious. I'm real Kabbalistic. I think we have many chances, you know, to learn um, through incarnations. That, that's just how I'm oriented. But... I would still say everyone gets to go through many different experiences while we're alive. And if someone consciously finally is tired enough of doing what everybody else demands and they feel so depleted, it's so great to have support for choosing what they love and for finding ways to have their own dreams come true, you know. So well said. That's so, so true. I mean, I have very similar beliefs to you. And I think it's a yeah, spiritual hap- thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens is that, you know, it <clears throat> you you may be able to do it for maybe the first two decades of your adulthood. And then all of a sudden it feels like you just can't tolerate it anymore. It just you get nice. to a point mm-hmm. where the empath just goes, I can't do this. And I don't know why. It's a breakdown. Why, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Why can't I do Well fit it's a in? breaking why- open. Mhm. Mhm. It's on one hand a crisis, a breakdown. The systems around you fail. It could be a marriage. It could be a job. Walking out, getting fired. It could be who knows anything major that shows that the inner self can't sustain the game anymore. Yes. And it, and I guess that's when it's beautiful when the game when someone realizes it is a game. Um, that their self-worth isn't dependent upon that role or that expectation others imposed. Um, And then it's a breaking open, and then, you know, there's a chance to grasp something else about the self that may be someone's own set of ideals and choices, and it gets beautiful then. Um, but it, it, yes. it's, I think life is a series of this coming and going, don't you think? Like we have so many phases where, you know, we exercise um, self-will and then we realize we don't want that anymore. Then we realize on a deeper level, it's like a layering that gets, uh, I don't know. Well, in, in, in a Kabbalistic sense, it's like you have a, you picture yourself, you have a hundred robes on and with each lesson you learn, you triumph in a way spiritually so that one robe comes off and the more you the more we learn the less weight we carry and mm. eventually when we become fully realized we don't have a robe on that weighs us down anymore i just love seeing it that way because 
it is really heavy when we're trying to learn all these hard things. It feels, you know, heavy. It does. You're so right. It's heavy. It's overwhelming. And <clears throat> and when we look at all that we have to um, learn or correct or, you know, change about ourselves, if we look at it all, it's just too intimidating and overwhelming. <clears throat> You've got to take it in bites. That is true. That is so true. And, again, I think that's where maybe – the conscious and subconscious minds serve us because, you know, and one of the reasons why I teach stream drawing as a creative meditation method is because the subconscious, the mind has a gatekeeper, right, that's not going to let us see and feel things that are going to ruin us. So we get a little taste of some of it through dreaming and through um conscious awareness meditation while we are awake getting into a stream of consciousness flow um, where a little bit might surface that we can handle bit by bit like you said where a little bit can come our way and we can look at the pain of it whether it's a memory something that impacted us and deal with it bit by bit that way we don't get slammed immediately too much some life situations do slam us and trigger all of it. But in general, I feel like our mind does serve us to try not to overwhelm us too much. Um, you know, it, it feels like um, we have so many chances with our, our experiences in life to kind of, I guess, spoon feed ourselves a little bit into conscious awareness so that we're not trapped. That, I love what you said. That's such a great point. And it's one of the things that deters people. Well, the lack of understanding of that is what deters people from getting help because they feel like there's so much in there that when it comes, when it opens up, they're not mm-hmm. going to be able to deal with it. And that's not the way it works. It doesn't work yeah, that way. The, it works in layers. It's like the fear a of a tsunami. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And don't you think, too, um, Really, the rule from and if we get the most impact between zero and age six, um, if the rule at home is keep it on the surface, we're not going below the surface. Just be surface, you know. Then you're you're cultivated in a way that won't allow, won't you won't be rewarded for you know going below the surface there or to bring up something that upsets people. And most of us have there is. Addiction is really common. It creates black and white thinking. It's physiological situations. Nobody's fault, but it happens, and it creates coping skills. And part of that coping skill is, and it's found in every family to some degree and every system, don't tell me anything true. Don't do that. Don't tell mommy she's an alcoholic. Don't tell NASA the the O-rings aren't going to work. They're going to explode, and that that um, you know that that space experiment is going to blow up. Don't do that. Don't rock the boat. There is such a thing with systems not being able to tolerate hearing a truth that you can feel extremely threatened by exposing a truth in your own family, right? So. Yeah. You're not going to do it. You're going to get in a relationship that, that you're, you're going to feel extremely threatened if you were to challenge the partner by saying, I feel hurt when you do this, or I feel this isn't right. 
you're not it's going to be hard even doing that at all because it's a threat unconsciously and and it it isn't always really a threat it's a worse threat not to address it but it sure feels threatening if you've been part of a system that won't allow the truth oh so well said it's so true how are we supposed to overcome that that's why it takes the strength of a lion right (laughs) it does Mm -hmm. it really does um yeah i mean i'm i'm as an adult i'm i'm pretty um blunt at times you know i don't sugarcoat Mm -hmm. anything and uh, some people can deal with that. Some people cannot. You know, it's just it's too honest, too straightforward, and not everybody likes it. But I I accept that that's who I am, and that's the way that I approach things. So well, I think it's beautiful. I actually feel I relate to that because first of all, naturally I was like that. I would be the one to say the thing no one wanted to hear, and then and I tend to be that way, and it causes trouble. But the thing is. I went to a therapist when I was about 20-something, and I was about to enter into a relationship. And I had had all kinds of things empaths have with relationships that weren't healthy. So I thought, I am going to be as conscious as I can be, and I'm going to overcome this. And I went to the therapist, and one of the things she told me, because I said my throat hurts a lot, and I, I this is really good education that I use in my own intuitive practice, and you probably have a form of it too, um, is that when a certain energy center of the body hurts, it tells us a lot, right? <clears throat> she told me, well, your throat hurts because you're not saying the stuff that needs to be said. So women for generations in general have, you know, been told not to speak up, not to say things, not to be, you know, aggressive and whatever. But... um if you, I decided at that point I would rather say it, and even if it's ugly the way it came out or whatever, I'd rather say it and get and get better and better at saying things better, or apologize for it not coming out the way I wanted, but at least I got it out. Because it's worse to not be assertive. If you're assertive, that's fantastic. It's really not your responsibility to take care of how others receive it. And yet, you know, this is very true. Um, an energy healer that I work with, um, you know, we've determined that I have throat chakra issues. And it's not, I mean, it's so obvious that I do. <clears throat> and what she explained to me is I've learned to go from my heart to my my third eye and completely um, eliminate or miss go around the throat. She Mm -hmm. said that's very common for people who have grown up with abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is about speaking their truth. And I I said, so, but I'm so honest. But we found an area in which I could not speak my truth. And Mm -hmm. that's what I've been working on. Well, and it's a blessing in in that it was that core pain, which you probably feel in your heart chakra, the, the heart chakra feels it so strongly, probably maybe even in your solar, because in the solar chakra, yes. when we don't feel safe in our environment, all those organs that are supposed to harmonize let us know we're not safe. could be a combo of it was someone else's lesson. Usually when it's in the uh, solar chakra, it's someone else's lesson, not yours to clean up. But when it's in the heart chakra, I'll, I'll know it's mine. Mm-hmm. And just tuning in, 
getting that bird's eye view of ourselves with those energy centers lit up, um, that that is a real cool thing because then you can say, well, to yourself at least activate the throat chakra by saying, I feel so much in my heart chakra over this issue. That's like a beginning of allowing ourselves to speak where we couldn't over something that was so crucially painful. You know, and I, I think stream drawing is one way to do that because it's it's talking, but it's using the lines drawn on a blank piece of paper to do the talking. You know, there are a lot of different ways we can talk. Um, we can express through art, through creative work, and dedicate the creative work to the thing that I don't want to talk about, you know, because I'm too scared. Um, and again, for all the right reasons, the inner child is threatened with, you know, life or death feeling if you do talk about it, right? That's true. I relate to that because, I mean, anyone human relates to that because there's always something there that is extremely threatening to give a voice to. Yes. It's part of our human plan. It's so true. Um, You know, when people say, I always ask people, when I'm on Zoom calls with them, show me where, you know, show me where you feel it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the heart or the, the heart, the throat or the solar plexus. That's, that's where everybody mm-hmm. sort of carries it. And sometimes mm-hmm. people will give me the whole range from the throat to the bottom of the solar plexus. I feel it all the way here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it's we get so stuck. subtle. Yeah. I mean, I was given the coolest dream. Sometimes I get like, I call them instructional dreams. And there will be scenes like a movie, you know, scenes of characters, and then um, animated sections, and then there will be a voice that that explains. Mm. And um, it was about the chakras. This was probably almost 20 years ago now. but um, And it was how we are not conscious. And, it, you know, so um, it the voiceover was explaining that when, let's say when someone's angry but they're not conscious of it and they have a right to be angry something's not fair they're being violated in some way they're hurt or afraid the the primal chakra is activated they're feeling threatened they don't know it they're not going oh my primal chakra is really fired up today <laughs> you know but they go to work and they're being caustic angry come you know it comes out it just comes mm-hmm. out in movements and voice um responses whatever vocal responses and then it's interesting because usually things around your environment are there to support. So in this dream, the angry person goes home, and, they, and they're showing me this woman goes to her apartment in New York, and a cat jump, her cat jumps on her lap. And the cat knows that her um, energy, because the cat can sense the energy. You know how cats do that thing where they kind of use their paws and knead? You know, they knead yes. on something. Mm-hmm. So the yes. cat jumps on this person and needs her legs her thighs and the over voice says the cat is aware that her energy is stuck in her primal chakra and is trying to move it through to get it out of her throat chakra you know so it's kind of interesting so i i think it a cool thing to imagine is that really things around us are there to support us even our pets you know mm. um we don't know. We really don't know sometimes. It, something has to happen to help us realize, oh, I didn't realize I was so angry, you know. Mm, um, yeah. But but in the end, one of the reasons why I love chanting um, 
Hebrew is because of the ancient sacredness, but it's a way for me to get, and this, the dream showed, the dream ended with us flying over people mm. chanting, and, it's, and guess what the last sentence of this dream was? The voice said, and the ancient scribes knew that chanting got it out of the throat chakra. Got the energy. Oh my gosh. I know. Tell me. (laughs) I know. Believe me, I was so moved by this that. um, So, one of the things I try to do all day long is I chant or sing. I use my voice, try to get stuff out because you don't have to get out the thing that's bothering you. Sing something you love to sing. It's the activation of the energy there that gets to heal just through using it, you know. Even better, though, if you sing something that has some ancient beauty in it, you know. Um, but any of the tones do. We're given, mm-hmm. we're given music for that purpose. I mean, for I think ultimately for that purpose, to make us feel love. I'm so fascinated with what you just said. It's just amazing. We have another caller. Let's check real quick and see um, what the question this caller has. And then I want you to tell us about stream drawing, okay? Okay, thank you. Okay, hi. Welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Did you have a question for Elaine or something you wanted to share? Hello? Is anyone there? Sometimes people just call to listen. That's, That's fine. It's okay. I'm going to put you back on hold. Yeah. Okay. All kinds um, of technical you, difficulties too. Yeah. Sometimes people just they they don't realize they can click a link and connect. They just call in. Um, so tell us about tell us about stream drawing. Okay. Well, you know how. Um, so I'm an artist and and I draw and and I was able to do some experimental things when I was teaching at a progressive independent school in Atlanta. When I was in my early twenties, I was discovering that. Um, kids, once they hit the age of reason around seven or eight, they would get really self-conscious about freely expressing themselves through making marks. And adults would say things like, um, I love to draw, but I'm no good at it, so I don't do it. And I thought, wow, this is not good. So I developed um, and have used it since the mid-80s ways of drawing to keep us in that expressive um kind of looseness because fundamentally I think we are creators that's who we are and there are no two of us alike so though we may do the same thing it's not the same when you do it and when I do it because you're unique so when you don't do it the whole world misses out on it so I believe that we are born mark makers as a symbolic way of understanding that we're born to exercise our ability to create and to change a blank world, you know, something blank with our own marks upon it, right? Babies know it. Toddlers draw on walls as soon as they can. They draw with their fingers with the food on their tray, you know, when they're eating. They're, They're fascinated by the ability to make a thing change that they can see the evidence right there. So um, I thought we're, we're belittling mark making very early. We need to teach writing, so we do emphasize writing because we live in a fabulous society that wants us to be empowered so we can read and write. The more you read, the more you're able to, you know, not be fooled by a dictator or whatever it is. So, 
that's worthy and that's important, but we shouldn't sacrifice the other part, which is cultivating the inner creator of all these unique individuals. We shouldn't kill it off because then we're, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from the creative ingenuity that everyone has inside them. So how I had people draw was close your eyes, use your non-dominant hand, and just draw freely. And it actually gets you into a reverie, a sort of daydream, where you enter a stream of consciousness flow while you're making these marks. And, and it feels awesome. It feels so good to do. Just even hearing the pencil glide across the paper feels and sounds great. Then there's a second part. You open your eyes and you see what you drew. And it usually doesn't even look like what you thought um, it would look like, you know. Um, and then you gaze in a daydream way and see if you want to play with that because really intuition and inner guidance and all that is connected to the imagination. The creative spirit is very much the imagination. It's a playful sense. It's, it's believing um, that your vision can be real, like when children, you know, when we played Cinderella, the living room was Cinderella's dungeon or whatever, then it was the palace. It wasn't pretending, it became, you know. Um, so we also undermine imagination, though that's what we need in order to make the chair I'm sitting on. We need someone to imagine it to make it be real. So the process of stream drawing is to get people to not be afraid to commit a mark to paper and to use it as a creative uh, visualization um, meditation method to stay in touch with your creative ingenuity and to cultivate it and let it out and then to listen to it and to participate with it. So it's, it serves as a way to help us create um, and not lose that spirit and then to intuit because you're having an inner conversation. When you gaze at the drawing that you made, you trust what comes and then you write down what thoughts came. Usually the imagery that we look at ha gives us an immediate response. Our world knows this and we use it color, shape, line, and form to make each other buy things. So we know how powerful it is to use visual imagery to make people feel lack to buy things, but we don't use it enough to love each other. One way you can realize is that the simplest line on a piece of paper makes us feel something. <laughs> so when you start to pay attention to the response you have to a simple line and the personality in a line, then you actually start feeling empowered because you have a conversation. That line looks uh, straight and confident. Oh, but that line is sort of crooked. It looks a little bit tired. You see what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. We're finding when you find the personality in the in the visual forms that you see, you notice what you're perceiving in your response to it. That's the beginning of an intuitive conversation. That's the beginning of intuitive knowledge and empathic sensing is tied in with all of that, and then uh, psychic ability is tied in with all of that. Why would we want to lose all that? We don't. We want that, don't we? Um, so, you know, drawing is just the most simple way. You don't really have to have anything but a pencil and a piece of paper to do it. It's not elaborate. Um, you know, I, I know I just said a whole lot real fast there, but that's 
basically what it is, it's to value each of us as individuals, keep us in a creative mode. Because, again, the worst thing is when you ask someone, what do you love, and they say, I don't know. What do you like to do creatively? I don't have, I don't know. Really, you don't have something that you look forward to doing that is playful and fun somewhere in life, you know? That's just not fair. To, that's our birthright, to have our imagination activated mm, and to be right. able I, to use it. This is mm-hmm. just so fascinating. I, you know, when I'm thinking, well, like a regular-sized piece of paper, like an 8 by 10 are we supposed to close our eyes when we do this? Yeah, because you know okay. why? What I found is when people use their normal hand, their dominant hand, and with their eyes open, they start to make a mark, they freeze up, they start criticizing themselves, um, they've had years already of things they've drawn, you know, comments like, oh, isn't that a nice scribble or doodle, or <laughs> it doesn't look like it should, or whatever. People are full of criticism, or throughout school, any mark you made on a paper would be graded, right? Um, mm. That's intense. So we gotta, we've got to throw away the self-criticism to get the activation of the creative flow right. and the stream of consciousness flow. So you use your non-dominant hand. You don't have control, and you close your eyes. You don't need to see it. The whole point is to feel while you're drawing and allow the feeling. I think people are uncomfortable with that free feeling, too. Um, That's okay. If you've been traumatized and abused right now, that might be very scary because maybe right now that person needs to develop a a stronger sense of self-control over their own domain, you know, have authority over their body. So it may Mm. feel too scary. It depends on who you are, where you are in life. But to just be in general, if you're looking for a way to open up intuitively, it works. And and it's not threatening. It may feel uncomfortable at first because you're not used to having freedom. You're not used to not criticizing yourself. You're not used to making a mark that is just for fun. You know, I can't not used I to doing this. anything. I can't wait to fun. try it. I can't wait to well, try it. Well, I would it. love for you to share with me what happens when you do, and if you have okay. questions about it. You know, I show a little bit about that in the um, way of the empath, and then there's another way to draw, too, that tunes us in uh, empathically to the subject that we draw, whether it's a person, object, or whatever. Um, but I would love it if you want to share with me any questions you have or how it felt or, you know. Okay, I, I'm fascinated so, by anyone's experience of it, too. Okay. So um, we're talking about your book. I just, I'm glad you said it. I want to say it again. The Way of the Empaths, How Compassion, Empathy, and Intuition Can Heal Your World with Elaine, by Elaine Clayton. And um, Elaine, I would imagine that this is available through Amazon and all the regular channels it should be in every bookstore any bookstore oh good. um it's also an audio book and okay. it's you know you can i mean you know if you have a favorite independent bookstore order it from them because we want to keep them open right, right. um if you would rather for convenience uh, we all do the amazon thing we're making jeff bezos so rich every five seconds but um <laughs> you can get it there you can go to barnes and noble um you know it's out there however you want to okay. choose to get it and um okay and how do yeah, we contact and, you how do we contact you if we want to share our drawings or, or our experience 
our experience okay. is going. I would love that. And I am at ElaineClayton.com. I'm also on Facebook. I have um, my own Facebook page. I'm on Instagram, same thing. And I'm also on Facebook. I have a, an intuitive stream drawing page. I don't pay that much attention to it because it seems like we're mostly on the regular, you know, Lane Clayton page or whatever. But um, so, but people who are specifically interested in the stream drawing, you know, will find me there too. Um, and you can email me through my website, ElaineClayton.com. Um, okay, and That's perfect. a great way. Yeah. So perfect. thank you for asking. Okay, sure. Okay, well, we have to end the show. We're a little bit over, but that's okay. I, I'm enjoying it. I'm really, really enjoying um, what you're telling us and the topic, and it's. I, I think everybody's really into it. <laughs> I so. am so enjoying this. I love <laughs> this time with you. I could not be more lit up, and you and I have to be friends. I know. <laughs> right? So when true. this is over, we're going to be friends. I know. Where are you? Where are you I'm well, I was in the New York City area and then um, came south. My family, I have a lot of family in the south, and I, I really was, all systems just sort of pointed me in the direction to be closer to my dad, who will be 93 in July. Um, during the quarantine, I just hated the feeling that I was in a room by myself, let's say, and he was in a room somewhere by himself, too far from me to be able to really be supportive. Um, and I tried all kinds of things, no door opened, and, but the flow took me straight to be near him. So I am doing that. Where are you? Oh, sorry, you did ask me where. <laughs> I am about an, <laughs> I'm about an hour and 20 minutes south of Atlanta in Columbus, Georgia. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, so Lauderdale. I'm not far from Florida. Yeah, I'm all the way down. I'm I'm in South Florida, Southeast Florida. Well, I okay. love it. I love that you're down there. <laughs> all right. Well, if you come down, we'll have to we'll have to get together. Okay. I well, sure anyway, will. Anyway, to my listeners, thank you so much for being here and listening to this show. And you can, they can listen in the archives as well. Um, Elaine, what what can I say? It's been terrific. It's really it's Just so absolutely. Such- fantastic talking with you and i'm so glad you are there to be supportive and do so much for people it's just a beautiful thing how you are living your life you know with all your knowledge and and letting it serve i just think that's beautiful well thank you i appreciate that i couldn't do anything but this you know how i mean i know that you're the same way that it's Mm -hmm. what i'm supposed to be doing so um i enjoy it and um and when you enjoy something, you're good at it. So, I agree. Anyway, anyway, I have to say goodbye, but we'll talk again. Okay, so, that's um, wonderful. So have a great day. Everybody who's listened, thank you so much. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.